Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Wonderful music. Opportunity to commission David. Exciting morning at College Church. Well, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you will have come across uh, people saying that if you trust in Jesus, then you are saved. But many people think that that kind of confidence is quite unwarranted, like a religious version of wish fulfillment, sort of pie in the sky. A Valentine's Day date, but not real life in any any ongoing way. Uh, Some people wonder whether actually it's even a good idea to give people confidence about their eternal destiny. I think it was the French philosopher Voltaire who uh, did not want his atheism discussed in front of his servants in case they started behaving badly. In other words, religion is meant to maintain a sense of uncertainty about our future eternal destiny so that we behave right. Other people simply think that that question of what happens after we die is as obvious as visiting a graveyard. To quote Bertrand Russell, when I die, he said, I believe I rot. Is it true that if you believe in Jesus, you are saved for all eternity? And if it is true... Should we keep a little bit quiet about it in case people get too confident and start acting as if it doesn't matter how they behave? Well, in our passage this morning, Romans 5 verses 9 to 10, the Bible tells us that having 100% confidence about our eternal destiny is God's intention for those who trust in Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's what I believe uh, that means. When we truly understand the magnitude, the immensity, when we truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be absolutely convinced 100% of the certainty of what he will do for us on the day of judgment. Let me say that again. That's my central proposition this morning. Everything's going to hang off this statement. When we truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be absolutely convinced 100% of the certainty of what he will do for us on the day of judgment. So let me first explain why I think this passage teaches this, and then we will apply it 
altogether. As I explain it, if you like the new Sherlock TV series about Sherlock Holmes, it may help you because it's all about logic. These verses, in essence, are all arguing from what God did, therefore, because of that, what he will do. It's a logical argument. Verse 9 and verse 10 are basically the same, repeated, though there are a few significant changes, as I hope to point out. But they're both saying, this is what God did, therefore this is what he will do. It's a well-known form of logic. Paul is making a logical argument, a sort of reasoning statement. He's asking us to think out the fact that we can be certain of what he will do, what God will do, because of what God did do. Actually, this form of logic, some people say, was an ancient rabbinic kind of reasoning, but it's also still common today in logical theory of rhetoric and argument. And uh, you find similar kinds of reasoning actually in many different cultures. Some people call it a fortiori, which means it's an argument that something must be the case because something else we know is already true. Now, let me give you an everyday example so we can follow the logical principle behind the reasoning here. Say you want to buy a packet of chewing gum. It costs, I don't know, a dollar or two. Say you have enough money to buy a car. So the form of logic would go like this. Because you have enough money to buy a car, then how much more will you have enough money to buy a packet of chewing gum? If the first is true, then the second must also be true. It's a well-known form of reasoning, logic, one you can find in the standard descriptions of ways of arguing and of logic. They use it even in commercials, like uh, the Lost Dog Super Bowl commercial this year, where those enormous Clydesdale horses, because they're so strong, you know there's going to be no difficulty for them to scare away one small wolf. Paul is using this sort of reasoning and then massively expanding it to our relationship to God. Having been enemies, we are now reconciled. So how much more now we are friends will God save us eternally? If you like, Paul is being a bit of a Sherlock Holmes. He's standing back at this point in his letter to the Romans and saying, well, given that we can now know what Jesus has done, surely that means we can be much more certain of what he will do. So that's the basic structure of what Paul is saying here. Given this is true, then this other thing must be true by logic. That's the shape of both of these verses repeated. But if that is the kind of argument, this is what Jesus did, therefore this is what Jesus will do, if that's the kind of argument for it to actually persuade us, we need to look and see if the deduction holds water, if it is something that stands up to inspection. So then what did Jesus do? Paul tells us in the first part of verse 9 and then in slightly different terms in the first part of verse 10. In the first part of verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Now, that word justified, of course, is a very important word for Paul. And it is also much misunderstood by people today. People today think it means giving you an excuse to do whatever you want. I feel justified and therefore I will do it. But here in the Bible, justified means a legal declaration, a law court picture. 
legal declaration of our right standing before God. Paul uses this word here quickly in passing because he's already defined it carefully. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and now in this chapter 5, he's drawing out conclusions from our right standing with God. So he has said that we're justified by faith. That is, we are just right in a right standing with God. I am just on a condition if I believe. Justify, just if I believe. Paul has emphasized that it's by faith, by belief. But again, people today also misunderstand what Christians mean by belief or faith. They think faith is a sort of saccharine, sweet, kind of cat poster philosophy, bumper sticker, positive thinking. But faith in the Bible is radical, total, personal commitment. And so here now, Paul also says it's by blood, because he's emphasizing the magnitude of what God did through Jesus' sacrifice. So here's how his thinking works. The ground of all our justification is God's grace, Romans 3, verse 24. He says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. That's the ground. It all starts in God's intention and his love and his favor towards us, his people. We're justified by grace in that sense. However, to receive justification, then we need to believe, to trust, to commit our lives actively and personally to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus by faith, by trust. So he says, Romans 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, faith is not the grounds of our justification. No, faith is the channel, the means of our justification. Faith, uh, empty hands, abandon, commitment. And now, Paul says, we are justified by blood, referring to the price that our justification cost when it was won through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. So here's how his thinking works. We're therefore justified by grace, the ground, through faith, the means, on account of Jesus' sacrifice, his blood at the cross, the price. This is what Paul says in verse 9 that Jesus has done. That's the first part of his argument, this kind of logic that he's using here. He repeats that first part of that argument in verse 10. He repeats it for emphasis because we need to reflect, to consider, to stare at the cross, to gain assurance about our future salvation. And, of course, today, repeating Bible truths is very important. For we live, as a recent Time magazine article put it, in a nation which believes the Bible but does not understand the Bible. And so, like a good teacher, Paul repeats, not word for word, but building on the teaching to show here the sheer magnitude of what Jesus has done. So, in verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Well, there is a difference here between verse 9. The main difference is the change of description of what happens when we trust in Jesus from justification to reconciliation. Now remember, justification is a picture of a law court. The judge acquits us and declares us not guilty. And not only not guilty, we're now standing in Christ's righteousness, wearing his clothes, pure and right and worthy to stand in a realm of grace, head held high. We are justified. 
But here, now, we're also reconciled. Well, the picture's slightly different now. The reconciliation is a friendship word. It's a relationship word. So we were enemies, and we saw last week how often that word is misunderstood, but now we are reconciled. We may have taken care of the house of our lives in a nice, tidy way, or we may have trashed the house of our lives, but either way, we have treated the house as our house and refused to give obedience and worship to the owner, the creator, God. But now, Paul says, look at this. We are now reconciled. God has done this. We are no longer enemies, but now are on the same team, united. This was done by the death, the blood, it's 10 verse 9, of Jesus. This is all what he has done. So he's saying to understand truly the cross, we need to understand the sheer magnitude of what this means. And he's, he's trying to expand our view of the cross by using these massive terms to make sure we understand what has taken place. God's son, he says. His, his son. Some of us have children. Uh, this week in the news we heard uh, of uh, a development aid worker named Kaylee Mueller killed Uh, By ISIS, it is thought. Now, God's love for us is such that he proactively sacrificed his son. Jesus himself also willingly to die for us. God's son. God's son's blood. The word is emphasized here. It's, It's brought out here to make us realize the expense of the sacrifice. He doesn't use a vague term. He says it bluntly. Blood. Justified. Not just forgiven, but declared righteous, standing in this realm of grace with Christ's righteousness as ours, no longer enemies, but friends reconciled in a new relationship with God of freedom, of access, and joy, and intimacy. And this has all been done for those who trust in Jesus. You see, it's so important we get this right because people today often mistake what Christians mean when they talk about being saved. They think it costs nothing and it makes no real difference. They think it's like a ticket to heaven. It was cheap. And the only price is a decision on our part. Or they think the Christians are arrogant when they say that they know where they're going after they died. Don't they realize how immoral some Christians still are? How can they possibly be so confident? We see all these kind of confusions come down to not fully staring at the magnitude of the cross of Jesus, what Jesus has done. The cross today for many people is jewelry, history, or mystery, when for Paul it is the slaughter of the incarnate God. Genghis Khan, Auschwitz, ISIS, what blood could avail to pay the price of that horror? What blood could be enough to stem the tide of the righteous wrath of the almighty, holy God against all the unrighteous filth and horror and damnable deceit and the petty jealousies of our own hearts? 
Count up all the disease and sin and sadism. See the silent suffering of unfathomable masses in slums and the human trafficking and racism and hate and hellish seeds of weeds growing in the all too fertile soil of our own human hearts and put it all one side. Pile it up. Bones and skeletons and lies and backstabbing. Body on top of body. And you say... That my sin, my evil, my pride, my arrogance, my selfishness can be justified, can be reconciled. At what cost? See the human condition in all its beauty and wonder and made in the image of God, gorgeous dignity and by contrast, its devilish fallen deceit and put beside it the sheer magnitude of the blood, the blood, the blood of God's own Son. And think of what he did when he who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think of what he did. And therefore, Paul says, we can be sure of what he will do. Could someone who has participated in fifty shades of gray-like activity be assured of their eternal destiny? You're looking in the wrong place, says Paul. You're looking at what they did. Look at what he did. Once we do that, how much more, verse 9, then repeated as he continues this form of logic in verse 10. Much more. If Jesus did this, the most amazing thing, then we can be sure he will do this other thing. That's the argument. Not about what we did, but what he did. Much more, verse 9, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now we can't skip over that final phrase. This wrath of God is the day of judgment to come. Paul has defined it already in chapter 2, verse 5, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is that day so often referred to in the New Testament, the day when God will judge. There will be a day of wrath. The book of Revelation describes it in detail. There will be a day of wrath, God's righteous judgment against all the evil. This is, as I say, we cannot skip over it. This is perhaps the most underpreached aspect of the New Testament in the church in the West today. People trivialize God because the church makes a travesty of the biblical teaching about an accounting. There will be a day of wrath. It is a terrifying thought. How can we be saved from it? Ah, says Paul, trust in Jesus. Is that all? Well, says Paul, I want you to think about what Jesus has done. Once you see the magnitude of that, then you will not merely realize that maybe you will be kind of okay on the day of judgment. You will think, how much more shall I be saved by Jesus from the day of wrath? 
So Paul returns the same argument as he concludes this whole section about assurance from chapter 5 through chapter 8 when he writes Romans 8 verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much more would he not also graciously give us all things? Think it out, Paul says. Jesus did this, bore the price of our sin and took hell for us. Well then, don't you realize that he'll also save you from the day of wrath to come? He went to all that effort to rescue you from drowning. How much more would he also keep you safe now you're on dry land, rescue you on that day too? It's not just certain, it's even more certain. How much more? He makes the same argument in verse 10. Much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now watch this. The Bible has three tenses of salvation. This often isn't the way it's expressed in contemporary Christian culture, but the Bible has three tenses of salvation. Saved, past tense, Romans 8 verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Saved, past tense. Being saved, present tense. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15. We are the aroma of God among those who are being saved will be saved, future tense here, many other places, for instance, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15, if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So in biblical thinking, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, past tense. We are being saved from the power of sin, present tense. And one day we will be saved even from the presence of sin, future tense. We've been saved when we first trusted in Jesus. We are being saved as we gradually become more like him by throwing off the sin that so easily entangles and pursuing holiness. And one day we will be completely saved, glorified with him forever. And all this, Paul is saying, is absolutely 100% certain, guaranteed, Because of what he did, therefore what he will do. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That is, once we trust in Jesus, we are in Jesus. We are in Christ, spiritually united to him, reconciled. We are in his life, his resurrection life. And so as he lives, so shall we live. Paul's saying, be a bit of a Sherlock Holmes. Think it out. Employ reason. Don't go by your emotions here. Truth and logic matters, as an NBC news anchor recently suspended is illustrating. Go by what is true, logical. Don't base your view on, of heaven on stories of near-death experiences or your own imagination of what it will be like. No, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. Now follow Paul's logic. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, if not, that's the first thing to get right. There is a day of wrath coming and no one can escape from that except through Jesus. Believe in Jesus now. He is the Savior. He will welcome you into his everlasting arms. Commit your life to him by faith. Not a vague 
positive, feel-good buzz, but a radical, total, personal abandon, like the blind man crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you've done that, if you believe in Jesus like that, what then? Can you be sure of what will happen to you when you die? How will you answer God if he says to you, what reason is there why I should let you into my heaven? And you and I will immediately think of all the things that we have done and the things we have not done. So most people say they will weigh up the good with the bad and therefore they will be able to have eternity with God because they've done more good than bad. And this is how all human religions argue. Islam says that paradise is as uncertain as walking across a scimitar blade, the edge of a sword. Others say that you have to have your sin purged from you after death before you can get into heaven. You have to weigh up the good with the bad. And perhaps if God is merciful, you might just squeeze through. And this is exactly not how Paul argues. He reasons it out, but not from what we have done or have not done. He reasons out from what Jesus did. What did he do? Well, Paul expands our vision of the cross from the miniature to the magisterial, from the ornamental to the effectual, from the perfunctory to the powerful. We are blood-bought sinners. One at such great cost. How much more would he not save us on that day? This Paul is saying it's not a matter of our personality or our emotions or our behavior. None of that enters into this matter of assurance here at all. Now, true, as we saw a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit pours God's love throughout our hearts and subjectively, including our emotions and our thinking, but certainly including our emotions, assures us of his love. But here, this is something that is entirely a matter of logic. Did Christ die even for his enemies Sinners, have you trusted Christ? That is a total personal abandon at the foot of the cross. If the answer to both those questions is yes, then you can be absolutely 100% guaranteed how much more, repeated twice for emphasis in the space of a few words, how much more guaranteed of being saved on the day of judgment. Not because of what you have done or not done or will or will not do. Not because of how you prayed a prayer or where you prayed or what kinds of words you used, not because of whether you have the right kind of religious background or what denomination you come from, or whether you come from the right class or race or have money or don't have money. Not because of any of these things that are about us looking at ourselves, only because of one thing, expanding the magnitude of the cross to something close to its true Greatness, an infinitely massive sacrifice of the blood of the incarnate deity. If that is the case, if you have trusted him, how much more will you be saved for all eternity? Don't take my word for it. Take the Bibles and don't just unthinkingly swallow the words, but follow the reasoning, the logic, the truth. Think it out. God sent his son to die. Stop there. Think about it. Die. Death. 
blood, sacrifice, Son of God. And is he now going to turn his back on you now that you're reconciled? It's absurd. How could it be? Jesus himself said the same thing. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. He is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep and they are safe now. They have been saved. They gradually are being saved from the power of sin as they follow him more closely as we all need to make progress in that area. And one day we will be saved 100% guaranteed. And so because of that, I think that what this passage is saying is this. When we truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be absolutely convinced 100% of the certainty of what he will do for us on the day of judgment. Now, I have three simple applications for all of us that I found helpful, convicting, and encouraging. I hope you will too as I've been thinking this through. But just before we do that, I've just got a little brief illustration, a personal Example, well, there's one very brief and another even briefer one right after it. I knew a professional man midlife at the top of his career who fairly recently came to Christ. It was a remarkable thing, quite unexpected. He'd always been a kind man, but he realized his need of forgiveness. Being able to stand right before God, he gave his life to Jesus. Gradually, this man succumbed to a terminal disease, and in the end, he went mercifully quickly. I went to visit him in hospital. And I was there with him, praying for him, and I remember him squeezing my hand as I prayed for him. And I came away more convinced than ever that here was someone who, because of what Christ had done, knew what Christ would do. Another illustration from the public realm is the great preacher James Boyce. When uh, Boyce was diagnosed with cancer, you can hear this actually, I think, still online, his words. When, When Boyce was diagnosed with cancer, he asked his church not to pray for him to be healed. He wanted to see Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. No fear in death, no guilt in life. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Now how? It's a matter of reason, of logic. This is what Christ has done, therefore this is what Christ will do. Because of this, as application, I think we can have increasingly three areas of freedom. Here they are. Free from anxiety, free from insecurity, and free from fear of death. First, free from anxiety. This week, would you in your small groups or while you're on the train to work or having a cup of coffee at Starbucks or something, would you consciously ask yourself this question? How much energy have I spent worrying this week instead of confidently rejoicing because of what Jesus did for me. Second, free from insecurity. 
People often misunderstand that if the biblical doctrine of assurance is preached, then we won't bother to live morally upright lives anymore, and so they tend not to preach it. But actually, the reverse is the case. For frequently immature, immoral, deceitful behavior comes out of a deep sense of insecurity, whether we are really loved, respected, wanted, valued. And so this week, would you ask yourself this question? Do I value more what so-and-so thinks of me than what God has declared about me at the cross? The more we let that penny drop, the more we'll be content, the more we'll be free to give generously and serve fully, the more we'll be free to take risks for God and for His mission Free to be who God made us to be. Third and finally, free from fear of death. I knew one Christian woman who used to talk about death as her graduation party. Perhaps the greatest book written on heaven outside of the Bible is Richard Baxter's The Saint's Everlasting Rest. He wrote it after he thought he was going to die. Actually, he lived for decades afterwards. But while he was facing that sickness, he got into a discipline, a habit that he kept for the rest of his life of spending half an hour each day before dinner walking and focusing on nothing but heaven. Well, half an hour perhaps is a lot. But ask yourself this question. This week before dinner, could I take a moment each day to think about nothing but heaven. Because when we truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be absolutely convinced 100% of the certainty of what He will do for us on the day of judgment. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess before You that oftentimes we do have anxieties and worries. We look at... uh, the size of this world and our own lives feel so insignificant it makes us insecure and we look at the brevity of our lives and that also scares us sometimes but Lord the sting of death has been removed And we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So by your Spirit, would you help us to follow the truth of what your servant Paul is teaching in your word here this morning? And so to live with fresh confidence, courage, peace, increasingly free from anxiety and insecurity, and even free from the fear of death. 
have been saved, we put our trust in you. If you haven't yet done that, would you do that? Not defining faith by a positive feel-good buzz, but a radical, total abandon at the foot of the cross. We have been saved. We are being saved as we seek to follow you, Jesus, and be increasingly free from sin. And we will be saved. And so we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.